Hello, everyone. I am not Kim Charlson. I am Clark Rockfall, ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, and filling in as moderator for our panel on the CVAA, the 21st Century Communications Video Accessibility Act. And I will ask our panelists here for a, a brief introduction on themselves, beginning, ladies first, with Karen Peltz-Strauss. Karen, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Clark. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so um, I guess introducing myself, I'm a disability advocate that's worked in the field for um, about four decades. Um, uh, my background is on communications, accessibility, effective communications primarily um, through telecommunications, telephone, television, and internet. Um, I worked in various capacities First at uh, Gallaudet University's National Center for Law and the Deaf, National Association of the Deaf, two tours of duty at the Federal Communications Commission overseeing disability policy there and drafted along the way, not at the commission, but outside the commission, various federal laws to promote accessibility, including the uh, CBAA. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Karen. And our, our next guest is no stranger to members of ACB. He's one of our co-chairs of the Audio Description Project Steering Committee. Carl Richardson, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I hope everybody is too. So I'm a, a deafblind consumer of both captioning and audio description as well as an advocate. I In my earlier life, I had 20-20 vision and I went to school for film and television and got my degree in that and worked in film and television for a while, but then later, due to the progressive nature of my eye disease, Usher syndrome, both my hearing and vision got worse. So I had to stop watching television and film. And by doing by doing research, I found that the audio description and captioning was fairly new because it was just then that decoders were being put in the set-top boxes. I was able to get back my love of film and television back. And for a while, I worked at WGBH's Media Access Group and National Center for Accessible Media under Larry Goldberg as the marketing person. Um, I, I left there many years ago, but I'm still an avid consumer and advocate for the use of accessibility when it comes to media and internet and telecommunications. Thanks, Carl. And I'll also note that Carl is a member of the FCC Disability Advisory Committee, as well as I am and Tony Stevens are the representatives on the DAC for ACB. Another member of the FCC's Disability Advisory Committee uh, is our third panelist, Blake Reed. Blake, how are you doing today? Hey, Clark, doing well, and uh, and and really nice to to be with you. And uh, Carl, Karen, it's it's nice to see uh, and 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 chat with you all as well. Um, so I'm a, a a law professor. I teach at the uh, University of Colorado at Boulder. Um, I teach telecommunications and intellectual property law, and I also direct our Samuelson Glushko Tech Law and Policy uh, Technology Law and Policy Clinic, the TLPC, um, and through. Through work at CU and and at Georgetown. Uh, before that, um, I spent about a decade in, in my clinical capacity working with um, a wide range of disability rights organizations, including ACB, um, on the implementation of the CVA on various closed captioning issues, um, as well as uh, issues relating to the accessibility of content at agencies like the Copyright Office and also a little bit internationally at the World Intellectual Property Organization. So really nice to be here and looking forward to the discussion. Um, and I noticed, uh, Clark, that, that Kim has joined us. Thank and you, Blake. Yes. Kim, welcome. I was just Hi. keeping your seat warm. Uh, well, our panelists did just a fine did job. If you would I like got... to introduce yourself and then Blake teed up a uh, closed captioning question perfectly for you. Oh, super. All right. Well, thank you again. I got, I got bogged down in the previous panel and, um, what a great session, um, Clark, the previous two, they were really informative. So um, I'm pleased to be moderator today. I'm Kim Charlson. I'm immediate past president of the American Council of the Blind and a longtime audio description advocate, both in um, live performing arts. And now I've 
really taken quite a turn with my colleague Carl Richardson um, because there's just so much on the media side and emergency broadcast. There's so much for us to do. Never a dull moment, right, Carl? <laughs> so, um, so I'm really looking forward to this panel today. And um, why don't we jump in, as Clark said, and start with uh, the question that Blake had lined up for us, the discussion. So, and Kim, that would be your first question on the list about the, uh, the discrepancy of closed captioning Thank and you. audio description. Yeah, so that, um, exactly, that we, um, we have realized for quite some time, of course, that captioning for the deaf and hard of hearing viewers is far ahead of where audio description is. And the CBAA has several discrepancies between where captioning is and where audio description presently is with the law. So we know that we have maxed out most of the audio description provisions, um, such as the 87.5 hours per quarter. So what we would like um, to see is audio description beyond par with captioning. Um, can you give any guidance on how we might avoid any of the pitfalls that captioning might have navigated historically? And what recommendations would you provide to blind advocates on the issue of audio descriptions? I can try taking that if you like. Super. Okay, this is Karen. Thank you, Karen. And Kim, your video isn't on. I don't know if that's intentional or not. I just want to. Oh, I'm sorry. Know. I thought it was. That's okay. It was on and then it, it went off. So I just thought <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I, I think that it helps to understand the history here and why there's such a discrepancy between uh, captioning and, and now you're on. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much. And, um, and an audio description. Um, there's a very long history and I won't go into all of it except to say that um, at the time that the, that Congress adopted rule or requirement for full captioning, captioning was very far along. And in fact, almost all primetime programming at that time was already captioned. And so there was a, a fairly strong record and foundation upon which the mandates could be built. Um, when we went, and that was back in 1996. In fact, we tried to get back in 1996 a mandate for, for video description, which is what it was called then, and um, we failed. Despite the fact that we failed, we got a report, a requirement for a report for video description um, that the FCC was going to put together to talk about what it costs and what its benefits are and how it can be provided. And so I went into the, actually, I was at the FCC when we put together that report, but we, but we went ahead and actually mandated the service anyway. And as many people know, it was that was thrown out by a court of appeals for lack of authority because the, FCC, the Congress hadn't authorized it. So we went back to Congress in the CBAA and we said, hey, you know what, we want those rules that the FCC developed to be um, become law because we need authority for the FCC to continue implementing them. At that time, the, the, only, the only thing that Congress would agree to was exactly what the FCC had put into those rules, which was very limited. And the reason it was very limited is because there was no track record yet on providing audio description for television programming. So we took what we could get in the CBAA because even that was even that was kind of on the cusp. It was, it was actually, it took a, a huge amount of persuasion to get them to even do that and expand at least some of the markets and, and allow for at least a little bit of an ex expansion. So I just, I think it helps to know that history that um, we pushed Congress to the max. Now, since then, as we all know, audio description has taken off. It's being provided by far more entities than are actually even required to provide it. Um, some of the uh, streaming services are making it routine um, and many, uh, many networks and channels are providing it way beyond the requirements. That's one thing that's happened. And the other thing that's happened is that the cost has plummeted. Um, and I can tell you that I know this pretty securely 
because I remember my family that provides audio description. And unless he's getting um, the raw end of the stick, which is possible, he's not getting paid nearly what I thought he would get paid <laughs> for this service. In fact, I think that this service might even be cheaper than captioning, which is something that I think needs to be explored. So all of this is by way of saying it's definitely time to go back to Congress. It's definitely time to say this is no more speculative. It's totally doable. It's being done. We can go back and say it's been proven to enhance the television experience of people who are blind and low vision, which again, all of these things we couldn't say the first time around. And therefore it is the time to now move ahead with a more comprehensive mandate. And I think that in doing that, we need to do some background investigation and, and gather together some um, information about what it actually does cost and, uh, use the reports that the FCC has put together on audio description. They've done at least two comprehensive reports to demonstrate that this is very doable and that it's time to Congress for Congress to re- revisit the issue. Thanks. Blake, do you have any comment to add to that? That was fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And Karen covered the history well. So I'll just add in a, a, a couple of quick notes. In my experience working on captioning issues, you know, my first introduction to it was reading, you know, something that the deaf and hard of hearing consumer organizations had filed that was colloquially known as the the 100% captioning petition, <laughs> right? And they, and they, they called it that and they talked about that. Um, and from the, from the moment I started working on it, the notion that anything wouldn't be closed captioned was a problem, right? The focus is on how do we get the loopholes out? How do we, how do we get to a hundred percent? Um, and I, so I think getting to that, getting to that fulcrum where you say the, the goal here is to have everything audio described. Now that sounds like pretty audacious goal, right? To say we should have every video that's on YouTube audio described hard, hard problem to solve, but I think it's worth starting there and working back to, you know, that we're obviously going to find parts of that, that we're not going to get Congress to agree to that. We're going to get industry to object to and so on and so forth. Um, but I think it's worth setting out that goal, and and, and I think describe understanding audio description as a, as a civil right, um, and and saying we need to have equal access to all video, um, and you know using that as the as the goal um, is a is something that the the deaf and hard of hearing community really used with captioning, and we're not a hundred percent there with captioning, right? We still haven't solved a lot of these problems with captioning, especially when we think about video delivered online but having that as the north star helps i think frame the conversations in a useful way um and and then i think the last thing uh, i'll say because i'm a telecom law professor so i actually teach the i have to teach the case um where the the audio description rules were thrown out and i i back in the early 2000s and i think one of the most notable things about that case was that the as I recall, ACB and AFB were on one side of the case and NFB was on the other side of the case. And so uh, that, that I think enabled that lawsuit to happen, that there was a perceived division about what line of visually impaired people wanted. And I think that gave the industry the opening to really push against those rules. And so I think having a really strong sense of, and and I don't know if what I just laid out, if audio description on every video is a civil right, that, that, that sounds good to me, but that may not be right. That may not be where the community comes at this. And so I think having a sense of where are the priorities with audio description? Is that a goal that the community wants to shoot for? Um, and then having the having everybody all in line to to execute on that, um, I think, is a really important aspect of whatever progress is going to look like um, in an update to the CVA. So I just underscore those those couple of points. Great, wonderful advice, and thank you to both of you. All right, now I'm going to direct a question to Carl Richardson. So an important part of the CVAA um, are the provisions for the National Deaf-Blind Equipment Distribution Program. 
um, or I can connect. And it provides telecommunications equipment for consumers with um, significant vision and hearing loss who meet federal income eligibility guidelines. What recommendations would you make for this program and its future growth and capacity to serve more consumers in the future? Well, thank you for that. First of all, as an as a member of the an active member of the deafblind community here in Massachusetts, I have seen firsthand the impact it can make on those who are deafblind or those who have a dual sensory loss. And so I just want to say it's important. One, I think the FCC needs to work with other federal agencies to reach to consumers who may not necessarily identify as deafblind, but maybe they just hard of hearing and low vision because they aged into it. So maybe they work with the the agency that work with the elderly population. Or some, so they need to collaborate with other agencies because there's a whole lot of people who have a dual sensory loss who are having trouble communicating because when you combine the two, two plus two equals five, you have to learn how to communicate and, and, and reinterpret the information. So they need to figure out how to reach those who don't necessarily identify as deafblind. Secondly, maybe look at changing the definition of deafblind so you reach a broader community of those who are deafblind and, and, and change the definition to a disability standard rather than an income standard, uh, which is 400% above the poverty limit right now. Also, I personally don't understand why hearing aids are not counted as a communication device, because if I don't have hearing aids, I'm not using anything else I can connect, can give me. doesn't matter what they're going to give me. If I don't have my hearing aid first, I'm not going to be able to take advantage of all the other equipment to communicate with. So that, that, I want, that's another thing to look at. Thirdly, I would look at things like making all Bluetooth devices hearing aid compatible, and just do a better job of marketing and letting people know of this valuable service because I've seen stories where mothers are now communicating with their children for the first time, things like that. And it just blows you away when you hear these stories. So I think it's a vital program, and it needs to be upgraded and continued in the next potential version of the CVAA. Thanks, Carl. Um, Karen, I'd like to give you an opportunity to speak to this because you have some history with this program that I think might benefit us moving forward. Thank you, Kim. Yeah, it's, um, I think that probably the most frustrating thing of all for this program for me was the low income, low income limitation, which was added at the 11th hour. Um, It was actually added after I already went to the FCC. I was very upset about it. There was no debate on it. There was no discussion. It was literally just added in as a, as a word that um, totally changed the nature of this program. And so when I was at the FCC, we tried to do as much as humanly possible to make that uh, category of eligible users as wide as possible. And that's why we went for four 400% of the income, low income poverty guidelines. Um, it was as far as we could go. Um, there were other various little components of determining income eligibility that we tried to also uh, allow for stretching of the population that could use it. We also at the FCC um, went way beyond equipment actually to include servicing of the devices and training of individuals. Uh, We, I mean, I'll be honest, we stretched this to the max, way, way beyond where we even thought we could do so. Um, and I agree with Carl that I, I love reading um, the Perkins descriptions and other descriptions of uh, the, um, co- the uh, impact and outcome of this program for people that previously had no communications I, I do think that there's room for improvement. Um, again, the income limitation. I'm I'm concerned about hearing aids. I hear what you're saying, Carl, but traditionally or historically, I should say, disability laws such as the ADA have stayed away from personal devices. So I, 
I hear you. I'm concerned that that might not be, that might be a hard sell. No, I agree. It would be a hard sell. And I'm just bringing up from my personal point of view. Yeah. No, it may, you're totally right. And again, we try to be as liberal as possible in terms of the scope of devices. And one of the things that I think we were successful on is making clear that it didn't have to be specialized equipment for people designed specifically for people with disabilities and it could be mainstream equipment, even if that equipment has multiple purposes. Um, So I think it's definitely worth taking another look at it. I also, I don't know about the income amount, the, um, the amount allotted. That's another place that we can look. There's $10 million a year. I actually think that the FCC has not ever had a problem with that amount um, in terms of, filling the spaces there's the the money's been sufficient but maybe that's a problem in itself because if there's excess funding available each year which i know there was for many years then i think you're right i i carl i think that we need to find other avenues to find the people that could use this service and i and i love the idea of having the fcc collaborate and using other methods to reach potential um recipients of the equipment Great. Kim, could I chime in uh-huh, with one like really, really, really short point here, which is to say there's this additional layer with how the program is administered, where it's not administered directly by the FCC, but it's administered by different entities in different different states. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the problems, so we've actually done some advocacy on this, um, on the deaf and hard of hearing side of things as well. And a lot of the feedback that we get on this is kind of third hand stuff. It's about problems that people are maybe having with the state agencies that are administering the program or challenges that they're sort of running into locally. And there's a real communication breakdown to get those issues on the radar of the FCC. So I would just underscore if folks listening in on this work with communities that take advantage of, use, rely on the program and are running into problems, um, making sure that the FCC knows about those problems and get in touch with the disability rights office and make sure that they know about it. Um, because I think there's a real communication breakdown, ironically, given the goals of this program about how it's working on the ground, because there's these, this kind of federated administration of it. Um, so that, that'd be my, my, my call. I would, I would love to hear stories um, from, from folks about how this is working and not working in practice. Good. All right. Our next question, I'm going to point at Blake first, and then we'll hear from others. But how can we have a CVAA that recognizes and merges access with the convergence of the Internet of Things to Mm -hmm. get greater accessibility and to make sure that we think more globally to cover things that are coming in the not-too-distant future that we don't even know about today, i.e., case in point, streaming services. And in 2010, they didn't exist. But somehow the deaf community had foresight to make sure that captioning would carry on um, and audio description was kind of left behind because we didn't think of that. So how can we, that's one example, but I know there's dozens of others with respect to the Internet of Things and communication. So, so Kim, I hope you'll forgive me a little bit of a law professor answer, but I promise I'll try to bring it, uh, bring it down out of the out of the ivory tower um, by the end. I, I would say that as we think about disability law um, and the categories of social functions, social things that are happening, social services, social products, and so on and so forth, we have a lot of categories that are rooted in the 1990s. Um, so in the, the ADA, we've got employment, we've got state and local government services, we've got places of public accommodation. Um, on the FCC side of things, we've got video programming and broadly speaking, we've got communications services. 
with these buckets and there are probably a few others that we could pick up around things like transportation and 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 healthcare maybe a couple of others um we have tried over the last, call it quarter century, to fit as new technologies come down the pike. We've tried to fit things into these buckets. We've tried to um, say, you know, a video on the internet is really not that different from video on television. And so we've got sort of buckets, we've got sort of analogies um, that work. As the Internet of Things has come along, we've got these digital communications kinds of things that are built into everything around us that we use. It's in our appliances. It's in our cars. It's in our, it's in our cities. It's, it surrounds us, right? And we have lots of ways of getting at some of these things indirectly, right? So let's take, for example, uh, video games, right? So we don't have a law that covers real directly the accessibility of video games. Um, and we embed gaming in all sorts of Internet of Things kind of devices. We kind of get at that because video games have communications features. And so we can use the advanced communication services rules that the FCC has to get at part of that problem. But what I think we're going to keep seeing is this broad category of things that we might lump in under the internet of things that don't neatly fit into video programming, don't neatly fit into communications, don't neatly fit into places of public accommodation, don't neatly fit into state government services, aren't necessarily directly tied to employment. Um, and some of these problems have persisted for a long time, by the way, right? Like I think about like word processing this is a good example before we kind of got to the internet of things, you know, Microsoft Word has an output accessible PDFs on the Mac for 20 years. And, that's, and part of that is because there's no legal or regulatory hook to get after Microsoft Word. We're going to have a whole category of products and services that fit into that under this banner of the Internet of Things. So I think this is a big priority for the next version of the CVAA to sketch out what exactly do we mean by Internet of Things? What are the things that are not getting covered by the existing legal regimes? What are the categories and products and services that we care about? Enumerating those and figuring out what it means for those things to be accessible and who's going to take charge, where we want to situate in the context of the federal government or state governments or disability law or wherever, making sure that those things are accessible. So I'm going to stop because I've been going on for too long, but that's, I think, a, a huge priority and, a, and, and potentially kind of a new priority that we haven't addressed yet and that we need new legislation to address. Fantastic. Great, great advice. Um, Carl, you have any comments on that? So I, I do think we need to ch change the paradigm and how we look at it. And one, I want to agree with Blake's comment earlier. Um, we have to think of it as a civil right, but also reword how we do things. Like you mentioned streaming services a second ago, Kim. Instead of saying they must be accessible, we could say, well, because they're all, all the networks and broadcast cables are going to that service. And once they go to streaming services, they're no longer required to pass through the audio description. So we need to say if you base it on percentage of their market share or, or how, how many customers they have, just like we do with the ratings on the broadcast side, the Nielsen rating, let's turn it, flip the script and do it on, on ratings. And that, and also say no matter what device, the file follows wherever it goes, and it must be screen reader friendly. And and I can see someday my wife getting the refrigerator and watching TV on the refrigerator. And does it go to that? So um, we the next version of the CVA just has to be much more flexible and open-minded, but that's going to be hard in government rulemaking because I work in government also in the state and I like very specific things. So these, this is going to be a big challenge for the the blind, the deaf, the hard of hearing community and the deaf blind community moving forward because technology is moving faster than rulemaking. <laughs> I think you're right. Karen. I'm sure you have some thoughts about this. Well, I think that Blake and Carl covered it terrifically. Um, I don't have that much more to say, just the, to echo that it needs to be addressed. And um, it is just so hard to make laws future-proof. Um, it's whenever we think that we've captured, we tried in the, in the 
CVAA, there's a reference to successor technologies to the internet, for example. Um, whatever we think we've, we've tried to do, we've been effective at doing that, something else comes along and uh, we couldn't have imagined it. And you just look at not only Internet of Things, but artificial, all kinds of applications used by artificial intelligence now, including predictive analytics and algorithms and automated speech recognition. And the list goes on and on, auto, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality. And it's just very, very difficult to know what kind of applications all of these things are going to have. And so for that reason, we just need to keep on top of it. Um, we're lucky to have people like Senator Markey. Um, we have him for another six years at least, and uh, he has expressed an interest in, in working with the community um, going forward as he, as he has for the past four, four decades. Um, and hopefully uh, we can get some bipartisan support as we have in the past on these issues as we move forward. Tim, before we move on, could I just yes. one thing that, that Carl, Carl brought to, to mind, um, which is thinking about the refrigerator. I, I saw a story that was making the rounds. I'm sure many folks on this call did um, about an inaccessible washing machine that had <laughs> um, had, a, had a, has a touch screen on it for controls. And, you know, it's the the controls are are, are visually generated. And so totally accessible um, for for people who are blind. Um I think about we addressed a lot of those problems when we were dealing with remote controls at the FCC, right? So like we've sort of solved that problem in another context, but we don't exactly have like a federal refrigerator commission. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. So I think th- thinking about how do we make refrigerators? How do we, or we don't have a federal washing machine commission. Yeah. How, how do we figure out where to task the accessibility and the enforcement of accessibility of consumer products like that. We don't actually have a good home for that right now. We don't have a good agency for that. We don't have anybody that's really in charge of that. And we've got a lot of kind of novel questions about what that means. And so we really need to figure that out in the next round of of legislation. I mean, that's just such a good point because if, if anything touches every single one of our members in the blindness community, it's a washing machine, a refrigerator, an oven, and stove. All of those appliances are just the major challenge for well, and, everybody. And the refrigerator will never fall under the FTC, obviously. But <laughs> I meant if they build a TV, I mean, they're now building TV sets in the cards. Who'd have thought cards would, would have monitors that, that are subject to the CVAA, but they do because they have playback devices in them. So that's all I, yeah. I bought. And I don't ever want what to. If a, what if a stove comes out, and it probably has, and I haven't heard about it, that has some kind of a TV screen on it where you can take a cooking class and cook. You know, you watch your class on the screen and you cook it yourself right there on the stove while you're watching the class, step by step. There's no, this is Karen, there's no question that there are things like that already being developed. And I will tell you that my refrigerator has a smartphone feature where um, when it once broke, we held our smartphone up to it and it conveyed information to the manufacturer about what was wrong and he told us how to fix it. That's only one step removed from having it talk to the manufacturer. So you're, you're absolutely right that these things are on the way. Some of them are already here. If you go to CES, you'll see all kinds of cooking and and other kinds of uh, training sessions that are built into products. I think part of the problem, and I think you've, uh, the other panelists have hit on it is that in America, we don't have a law covering products and that's not the case in other countries and some other countries. Um, Europe has some laws covering products as well as services. And, and so what we have, like, for example, with gaming is, as uh, some of you have mentioned, I mean, well, part of, Part of the gaming feature will be accessible, but but not all of it. And so I think it's also confusing for the industries when part of their devices are must be accessible, but not the rest. Same with ebooks. So it's it's a real problem. So uh, while the um, the FCC's has made progress over the past decade on the accessibility of video programming through the provision of closed captions and audio description, critical gaps remain in the coverage and quality of captions and description, particularly on IP-based services. So what can 
we, um, what can the FCC or a new CVA do to remedy the issues surrounding quality of both captioning and audio description? Blake, do you want to start with that? Taryn, I saw you moving to start on this one. You, oh, you she's take good it first, on that or? one. Okay, <laughs> we'll take Taryn. I mean, it, it, took, it took 10 years between the time that consumers filed a petition and the time that the FCC issued rules on captioning quality. So that's probably not a good model. But once we got started, which was under Wheeler, it actually only took five months to get them actually out. Um and the way that we were able to do it was to have a collaboration and coordination across four different stakeholders, uh, the um, industry, such as um, not only um, well the server, the industry meaning the t- networks, the channels, the stations. That, in other words, the television industry or video programming industry, the service providers, uh, which in that case were captioners, the consumers, of course, and the FCC, and we had meetings, regular meetings, um, almost every Friday, actually. I remember this because Friday's a dress-down day and I had to keep dressing up. Um, <laughs> but, it was, but it was worth it because um, we really hashed out the quality issues. And there, were, there was no mandate for quality in the, in the 1996 communica- amendments to the Communications Act that required captioning. So there doesn't necessarily need to be a legislative change here. If there are quality issues, and my understanding, again, from uh, this member of my family who does audio description indicates that there are, and, and, it's, and that there's a lot of questions surrounding how audio description should be provided, and each provider seems to hit this person freelances for a lot of different companies. Everybody does it a different way. Uh, there are all kinds of chat rooms about how people prefer it to be provided, um, and so people have to people the the community of stakeholders need to get together and um and and talk to the industry and figure out common ground i don't even know it would be bet pre- preferable for the fcc to, to coordinate it so that it actually happens and maybe the first step is having the consumer um community file a petition akin to what the consumer community did in the deaf and hard of hearing community to get the FCC going. There's nothing, in other words, bottom line, nothing stopped the FCC from moving ahead with quality rules. If that is of concern to the community. And um, I think that they are probably the best ones to get it done because they won't let it go if they get it started, especially under this administration. Clark or Carl, do you have any comments? Clark, uh, Blake. Oh, well, I'll just jump in. Carl, real, go ahead. I'll uh-huh. jump in real quick. We, we want to be careful because there's a lot of lessons to be learned from what happened to the captioning community. For years, yeah. they fought for quantity and didn't think about quality right away. And now, even now, they have an issue with quality as technology changes with what's known as ASR, automatic speech recognition, and things. But they at least have a place where you can call the station. There's a database, so if there's a caption quality concern, if it's not on, if it if it you know if it's not accurate, they they have a place we can call. We in the blindness community don't even have a database of audio description vendors to call. So it would be nice if we just had a dedicated number for each station just to call, and that would be a basic line. Also, you know, on captioning, they're not necessarily fighting. To with the Spanish language track, captions are on once you turn them on CC1. Other languages are on other uh, streams within the caption stream, but audio description could have a... So there are things we can do now without really dramatically changing by improving the quality, have a separate dedicated track, uh, have a place to call that, that, so that when the industry hears those concerns, they can say, oh, they're right, we got to make these improvements. And then I would love what Karen just said, to have the FCC push quality guidelines, but I know for a fact that industry will bring up First Amendment concerns. So that's half, we have to find an argument around that, and that goes back to Blake saying that they, we have to change the paradigm of how it's looked at. We have to compare it to that of a ramp to a building or a, a an accessible curb cut to a sidewalk. It's just part of it, and it's a civil right. Great. Uh, I, I, 
Yeah, I could just pick up with with what Carl said, which is I I, I think Carl hit on almost all of the hard points, and I'll uh, I'll add one new one and underscore one. Uh, quality is just hard, right? Um, and, and and quality you would think with captions isn't it wouldn't be that hard, right? It's you want it to be as close to verbatim as possible. But even captions, there's a a ton of subjectivity, both in terms of, you know, describing in text what's happening orally um, and in terms of what um, what's going to work best for viewers. Right. So when you got people talking really, really fast, faster than than people can read, what do you do with um, those kind of situations or, you know, what if there's just a lot of information happening? You got to make decisions. What if we're dealing with live programming where none of the technologies that we have for captioning in the moment capture it all how do we handle all the sorts of trade-offs um and and i think there's a ton of those same sorts of trade-offs with description quality what does it mean for description to be high quality um and, and i think the dac uh in its recommendation put started to really put some meat on the bones of what description quality actually means but i still think there's a lot of just hard specific questions about what we mean by quality as for the first amendment point carl which i think is an important one first amendment issues have been lurking in the background ever since the original audio description rules were were uh, thrown out by the DC circuit back in the early 2000s on kind of first amendment grounds um i think it's worth being careful about that and thinking about that I don't think those arguments are very good by the industry. I think they're wrong. Um, I think the notion, you know, unless the industry is saying it's our first amendment right to not audio describe this because we don't like audio description. I suppose they could make that argument, but the argument I've heard is a lot more subtle, which is, you know, this is content that we're dealing with here and we need to tread really carefully. There might be first amendment problems. I think if, if you can develop a really authoritative sense of what it means to have objectively high quality audio descriptions, I think as Karen raised, the FCC has got the authority to do that. Um, or it can find the authority to do that within the statutory framework that exists now. I just think the hard question is what exactly does that mean? What does that look like? Then how do you translate? translate that into a way that maps onto the audio description industry and then how do you enforce it? And those are all 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 hard questions. I want to try to squeeze in a couple more questions before we run out of time. I'm not sure we will, but every one of these is important. So um, people with disabilities continue to depend on the FCC's oversight on accessibility of wireless handsets. And what can be done to improve the accessibility of wireless handsets for consumers using low or no feature phones. Many of our members do utilize low technology as well. Um, Karen, you wanna grab that one first? Very fast answer, file complaints, file complaints, file complaints. <laughs> or the FCC with complaint. They will, they will address it. And it will it will hopefully resolve be resolved in um, through the uh, dispute resolution process. I think Clark may have some thoughts on this one yes, as well. Clark, are you muted? I think you might be. Oh, sorry. I mean to mean to pick on him. Uh, he might be in the other room too now. Okay. So I'll, I'll just say real sure. quick. There, folks should weigh in on the FCC's. The the one thing the FCC is running at right now is improving programs that provide access to broadband, both services and potentially devices, right? So th- I think this is a time where everybody's recognizing as we're, uh, as, as everyone is stuck at home in the pandemic, as video conferencing becomes sort of the dominant mode of, of work and, and education and health and so on and so forth, that everybody really needs access both to broadband services, but also the devices to get on, on broadband. And so I think there's also a move towards making sure that the FCC's programs that provide access to, um, to, to feature phones and so on and so forth, be expanded so that folks can get access to smartphones or to, to other devices that might uh, might afford improved accessibility. So I think now is a now is a moment where the commission is thinking about that a lot, and Congress is as well. That's great. That really um, walks right into the next question I was going to ask, which is, what can be done to ensure that accessibility of captioning and description interface? with video conferencing platforms 
such as, um, you know, FaceTime, Zoom, Google Hangouts, et cetera. These problems have certainly been exacerbated when um, difficulties with the public health communications have come along during the pandemic. And so what can we do to make sure that these platforms are accessible and compatible with each other so that all people, regardless of what technology or device they are using, are able to communicate with one another. Like you want to start? Yeah, this is this you, is what no, we've been been you, working on hard on uh-huh. on the on the deaf and hard of hearing side of things. So you know, video conferencing services are one of those things that. I think unlike the internet of things, we actually have really close to a good hook for the FCC to do more on the accessibility of video conferencing services. There's a part of the CVA, which gives the FCC authority over interoperable video conferencing services. And it's that word interoperable that has derailed uh, efforts for the better part of the last decade to make video conferencing accessible. One of the things we're working on is trying to get that word taken out of the statute. Um, And I think if that, comes into being and the FCC has the ability to require video conferencing platforms to be accessible. I think that opens up a a whole runway of uh, of things to improve video conferencing platforms ranging from making sure captions can interoperate um, that that automatic speech recognition captions are provided that relay can interoperate mm-hmm. um, that uh, making sure that across all kinds of laptop desktop tablet smartphone platforms that the apps that people use um, to, to access these services are designed with uh, with screen reader support in mind use making sure that the um, the app store that de- deliver these are making sure that they uh, comply with the APIs for the, the various platforms. So I think if we can get that doggone interoperable word out of the statute, I think there's an absolute ton that can be done to, uh, to improve the accessibility uh, of, of video conferencing across the board. I want to just throw in one point on that. It's going to take a while for this law to get passed, whatever we're doing, and we shouldn't wait. So in the interim, people should be setting up meetings and reaching out to the video conferencing systems. We already see that Zoom is the most accessible of probably of all of the video conferencing programs. At least that's from my perspective. I don't know if it's from others, um, but it, it already has more features now than it did in the beginning. There's nothing to stop the community from reaching out to the industry directly and saying, here's what we need. There have, while I, while I am a regulator and at heart and an advocate at heart for regulation, there's been a lot that's been done, especially since the passage of the CBA, that goes way beyond the CBA scope. And so I, I would urge people to reach out to uh, perhaps friendly listeners in the industry. Absolutely. Maybe Microsoft, maybe Apple, just to name a couple of companies. Google, that are- Apple, Microsoft. Google. It has gotten better. I think you're absolutely right. But then we heard a horror story from a member this morning who said that the video um, conferencing platform that her medical provider uses was not accessible. She had very, a lot of difficulty getting into her appointment, finally managed to get in, said something to her doctor, who then got very defensive and refused to provide medical treatment. And that's it's completely that's, in violation of the uh, Title Three of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We so. should we should we should call out uh, if if you're running into problems with telehealth and seeing a ton of that on the deaf and hard of mm-hmm. hearing side of things as well. Yeah. That's a straight ADA violation, or at least there's a really good argument that a, a doctor's office should be providing uh, accessibility as a place of public accommodation, even if they're temporarily delivering their services virtually. And so I think that's one where the community of, of disability rights lawyers that do ADA, traditional ADA advocacy can go to doctor's offices and say, hey, you can't use inaccessible platforms. You need to figure this out. That's yeah. that's still part of your obligation. So uh, employment, I think, also is a, is a place where if employers are not doing what they need to do um, with, uh, with video conferencing platforms, there's actually a good hook under the ADA to deal with that now. Great. Any thoughts, Carl, before we give each of no, you I don't, a, I don't think I can up? I think Blake can count that at nightly. Perfect. So, so why don't we, um, in in closing, um, I'm going to have each of you kind of 
sum sum up and kind of advise you know where we need to go and um i'm really um, there's just been so many great comments um this has been a very valuable panel we haven't had time for questions but i think what we have put out there are some amazing examples and ideas for crafting cvaa 2.0 and that's really what we hope to get from this um conversation today so carl well I do agree that we should reach out to our legislators to draft a new TVAA, but I also agree with what Karen said. That's going to take time because I, I, I work with the Massachusetts legislature. I work at the State House, and a bill takes an average of seven years to pass in the law in Massachusetts, so I can't imagine what it is in the federal government. So in the meantime, we need to advocate to the vendors, the product manufacturers, and, and let ACB know what we want to do as we move forward and just continue and never stop advocating. That's right. That's that's Clark's uh, mantra, I think. So, uh, Blake, your thoughts? So just to say one thing, I don't think I've said this this whole time, but maybe it's an undercurrent, which is I think we conceptualize a lot of these problems that we're trying to address in legislation and regulation as like solved problems that we just need to, you know, get the legal obligations in place and the enforcement obligations in place to fix. Um, I think we're heading into a lot of new technologies where what it means for them to be accessible um, isn't, isn't entirely clear. We're seeing a lot of innovation that isn't uh, where accessibility isn't part of the process. And so I think as as you, as you're doing advocacy with industry folks, um, making sure to highlight the importance of hiring people who are blind or visually impaired, involving people who are blind or visually impaired in the testing process, making the, the, the community part of the, deployment development of uh, of all of these products so that they're designed with accessibility in mind in the first place and that the innovation around accessibility in, in other words coming up with creative new ways to make these new technologies accessible um that 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 can spread through the industry with law and regulation but but we we need answers to for for how to do that um and the companies that are coming up with this stuff need to involve the community in that that process thanks and finally karen yeah i just want to echo what blake said the importance of including people with disabilities in the design process but i think the good news at least for the major players is that that has happened at an unprecedented level since again since the passage of the cvaa we've seen a real sea change in attitude and culture in many of these larger companies with respect to the need to incorporate access at the design stage rather than as an after fact or, or after as a, after the uh, rollout of these uh, and deployment of these products and services. Um, accompanying that, I think that the community has to remain ever vigilant, um, keeping its eye and, and ears and um, everything on the pulse of the uh, changes in technologies as they happen um, so quickly and make sure that the regulators as well as industry know what's happening so that it's not a, it doesn't become a surprise to them when we come to them and say we need things we need something fixed to make sure that accessibility stays intact thank you well i want to thank all three of you for just putting out there some really great suggestions some guidance some direction um, to really help us formulate and shape what um, CVA 2.0 can begin to look like. And I know we'll be back to all of you for more guidance um, as we start to put together a more um, coordinated plan, um, including all the parties that need to be a part of all this so we can move CVAA 2.0 forward. So thank you. And I'm going to turn this back to Clark or Tony, whichever of them happens to be here. And thank thank you. you again. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. Thank you. Thank you.